You know, I am intrigued by purpose statements and mission statements. Now, for all of you purists out there, I know there's a difference, okay? And whole books have been written on the nuances, the distinctions between purpose statements, mission statements, and vision statements. I get it. I know that technically they're different. But for the sake of simplicity today, I'm going to use statements like purpose and mission sort of interchangeably. And so I was intrigued, and a couple of weeks ago, I went online and started reading the mission statements of two to 300 of the Fortune 500 companies, and I found them so provocative. I want us to look at some of them together. We're just going to do this very rapidly and just kind of go through them, but I want you to see examples of what I'm talking about when I talk about purpose and mission, and although... The bottom line of these Fortune 500 companies, these are the most lucrative companies in the world. They're making a lot of money, but you'll hardly ever hear that mentioned, of course, because their aspiration is usually higher. For instance, AT&T, a company we well know, inspire human progress through the power of communication. How about BlackRock, one of the top financial companies, to help more and more people experience financial well-being. Or then CarMax, maybe some of you have used this company to find your automobile, to drive integrity by being honest and transparent in every interaction. Or Coca-Cola, a company that's been around for a long time and is known all over the world. One of the most iconic symbols around the world, Coca-Cola nothing to do with money, refresh the world, make a difference. Or about Dick's Sporting Goods. We create confidence and excitement by personally equipping all athletes to achieve their dreams. Boy, that's glorious. What an aspirational purpose statement that is. Or here's eBay to empower people and create economic opportunity for all. Back in 2007, the Eli Lilly Corporation, through a grant and a foundation they created, they provide sabbatical funding for a lot of pastors around the nation. And Debbie and I were so privileged to receive that that grant back in 2007. Eli Lilly The pharmaceutical corporation says, Lilly unites caring with discovery to create medicines that make life better for people around the world. Expedia, to bring the world within reach. Or Ford Motor Company, to drive human progress through freedom of movement. So you're getting the idea here. Or some of you, a number of you, work for General Electric Corporation. We rise to the challenge of building a world that works. That's their mission statement. Or how about Hewlett Packard, to advance the way people live and work? Or the Intel Corporation, to create world-changing technology that enriches the lives of every person on, on earth. Or how about MetLife, one that's been around a long, long time, to help our customers navigate life's twists and turns. Those things that you, you know, just 
can't expect, you know they could happen, but you don't know. Or how about Molson Coors Beverages? Uniting people to celebrate all life's moments. And then I included a couple more that I was just impressed by. MD Anderson, the University of Texas Cancer Center, said their purpose is we make cancer history. Isn't that a great purpose statement? We're working so that cancer is just gonna be history. And then one more before we pivot. This is from the New York Department of Finance. Okay? Now remember, this is the group responsible for collecting billions and billions of tax dollars from you, New York taxpayers. We help people pay the right amount on time. All righty then, okay. Now we could go on and on with purpose statements that declare the overarching goal of this particular organization, why it exists. And I don't know how you feel about those statements we just looked at. You may love them, you may hate them, you may think, ah, some of them are a little bit misleading or maybe they missed the point. You might even think some of them are downright receptive. But make no mistake, those statements we just looked at, mostly from Fortune 500 companies, give the why. The why that organization exists. But now let me change the focus. What would you say is the why of the church? Most of you would consider yourselves followers of Jesus Christ. That means you've been born again into his family. You're a part of his body, which is called in the Bible, the church. What is our mission and purpose? Well, at Grace, we make a big deal of that. In fact, you know what? We've written it on the walls of every one of our facilities. You'll see it literally written on the walls. It's on our website prominently. You hear us declare it constantly from the platforms in these buildings. Here it is, to glorify God by making more and better disciples. Say, Pastor, where'd you get that? Got it, got it from Jesus. Got it from Jesus. Uh, it's often called the Great Commission. If you're new to Christianity, that, that's something you should probably know. The Great Commission, these kind of last marching orders Jesus gave to his followers just before ascending into heaven. It's biblically revealed to us. It's from the Lord. It will never change. But again, let me pivot once more. Let's make it personal now. Let me ask you, why do you get up every day? It's because my alarm clock goes off, dude. That's why I get up. No, 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 way beyond that. What drives you every day? What consumes you as you live your life? What would you say is your why for being? Now, in your Bible, there's a chapter that speaks powerfully to this whole question of purpose for the Christian, for the believer. It's 2 Corinthians chapter five. I invite you to find it uh, in your hard copy of scripture, uh, your electronic device, however you're reading scripture. 
It is amazing, and I invite you to leave it open right there. If you're looking, by the way, for a whole chapter of Scripture maybe you wanna take on as a project to memorize, I would recommend 2 Corinthians 5. It, to me, it's one of the top 10 chapters in all of the Bible, really is. It's, it's just packed. Uh, back in the 1980s, I, I memorized this chapter from the New American Standard Version, and I've, I've meditated on it. I've rehearsed it at least once a week since then, every week of my life. If you're looking for a chapter in the Bible that maybe you wanna spend a month just kind of meditating on, maybe reading through every day. I, again, there's a number of ones that would be good, but I, I'd say that 2 Corinthians 5 is one of the top choices you could make. And one of the reasons for that is because it really is just bursting, and I mean bursting with purpose for the Christian. And that's important because in my opinion, there is no time ever in our lifetime that we need to be more clear about our purpose than today. Now, I'm gonna make a statement right now that you're gonna, you're gonna think I'm a prophet. I'm not a prophet. In fact, my father was a farmer, so I'm not even the son of a prophet. In fact, I'll go one more. I actually work for a nonprofit organization. <laughs> okay? So I'm not a prophet. I can't forecast in intricate detail what will happen in the next few years, but I think you don't have to be brilliant to see that we're quickly going down the road towards some pretty serious moral crises in America. And I would even add possibly political crises, possibly economic crises, not a profit, but I think we're racing quickly Sort towards some pretty serious days when we're gonna need some grit as believers. Again, I, I don't wanna downplay for a moment the great things God is doing in churches like Grace Fellowship and many other churches across this planet. God is doing awesome things in pockets all around the country, all around the world. But in my opinion, there's never been a season in my lifetime when Christians need to be clearer about why we're on the planet than we need to be today. And I think the answer is found in 2 Corinthians 5. For years, if you asked me, hey, what's your life verse? You know how some Christians have life verses? Well, that, that's a cool thing to do. You don't have one, you may wanna choose one that kind of sums up why you're here. And by the way, I've used a number of them through the years. John 17, four, uh, I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. That's one that you don't really finish until you die, right? I mean, that's a pretty good one. And I like 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It, 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 it says that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's all kinds of great verses that could be life verses. I, I hope you have one that kind of speaks to you. But, but most of my life, if people ask that, this is the verse that I point them to, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. The NIV says something like this. We make it our goal to please him. 
So you could state our purpose as individual Christians like this, to please God with our whole being. That's what a Christian is trying to do. That's the why. We're here to please God with our whole being, every aspect of who we are. That's one of the unmistakable marks of a true Christian. You, you just want to please God. I mean, come on. When you come to Christ, it, it, things change. You, you don't want to disappoint your heavenly Father, right? Once you've been saved by his amazing grace, once you've been adopted into his family, and he literally comes in by his spirit and begins to change you from the inside out, you realize it's not about me anymore. I used to live my life for me. I was the focus. I, I was probably a bit narcissistic, but it's now about him, his kingdom, his agenda, his desires, his mission in this world, and I get in on that. And here's what you realize over time. At first it doesn't make sense, but you eventually realize that the more I delight in God and his purpose for me, the better life's gonna be. The more I delight in God and pursue his purpose and his kingdom and his righteousness, the more I realize, wow, I just can't lose here. Not, not that life's gonna be perfect, not that my marriage is suddenly gonna be idealistic, not that I'm gonna enjoy every moment at my job, not that my health is gonna be perfect every day, all my life, not that everything's gonna smell like roses, that's not what I said. I realized that the more I delight in God and seek to please him, the more ultimately I'm going to be blessed. That's just a fact as a Christian. You say, wait a minute. Pastor, how do you know that? Well, the next verse. If things don't totally make sense to you as you're reading the Bible, by the way, read on. You stop too soon, probably. Just, just read on. Just read the next verse, and here's what it says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In Greek, that's the word bema. It's the bema seat of Christ. This is the judgment for true disciples, for true believers. We're gonna be judged, folks. We're gonna stand before God in judgment. What's gonna happen? Each one may be recompensed. That means paid back. Paid back for his or her deeds in the body according to what he or she has done, whether good or bad. Somebody said, boy, in this world, our lives are open books. They are, but they're really gonna be an open book before the Bema seat. Nothing closed, nothing hidden. All my motives will actually be laid bare and examined before God. You say, pastor, I don't like that verse. That makes me really uncomfortable. Pastor, I like verses like Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Awesome, I love that verse too. And I don't want you to misunderstand this. I hope you've got 
good, solid, sound theology, and I hope you understand that once the salvation question has been settled in your life on this planet, there is no more condemnation for you. You will never stand before God all shaking in fear, wondering, am I saved or not? That issue is already settled. And you will never be banished from God's presence because your eternal destiny is sealed. You say, well, well, then make sense of this verse for me. I mean, what does it mean that we're gonna appear before God? What's that about? Fruit inspection. Fruit inspection. It's an evaluation for the Christian of how we stewarded this one and only life that God gave us. Did we make it our goal to please him in every area of our lives? How did we do with that? Or did we do like the old commercial said and have it our way? What was it? Did we please ourselves? Or did we please Christ? And I wanna suggest to you, just dream with me for a moment. Oh, what a wonderful world this would be if every Christian embraced this as a personal mission statement, that we make it our goal to please him with our whole being. You know what I think? I think God would flood this world with so much grace I think we'd see revival like we've never seen. I think the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. If every real Christian just embraced that personal purpose statement and said, this is my why for living, this is why I'm getting up every day, I exist to please God. That's my ambition. That's my goal. Wow, hey, let me go a step further. What if we did that as a church? What if all of us pastor types finally got it through our stinking heads that it's not about numbers and metrics? Wow. What if we actually woke up one day and realized that the real measurement we need to be after is, is God pleased? Is God pleased with our sermons? Oh, my Lord. Is God pleased with our songs and our worship? Is God pleased with our programs and our ministries and how we conduct things? Is God pleased with our leadership decisions? And that was the guiding principle in spite of what anybody else thought, I think the result would be profound. But how do we go about this? Because if I were to stop right now, honestly, if I were to pivot right now and say, okay, now we're gonna talk about all the ways that we please God, we'd be here till the 4th of July and we'd just be getting started because there would literally be hundreds of little things that we can do to please God. So we, we gotta shorten this, all right? So again, let's stick with chapter five. I told you it's one of the best chapters in the Bible, really. If you want a chapter just to immerse yourself in, 2 Corinthians 5 is one of the best. 
And if you read on from verses 11 through 20, it gives us three powerful ways that we can go about fulfilling that mission of pleasing God. So let's quickly look at them in these minutes we have together. The first one is this. Therefore, excuse me, we please God by persuading people that the gospel is true. Now we get that one from verse 11. Again, I'm working today from a different version I usually work from just because I memorized it a long time ago and I usually stick with the one that I know best. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Every real Christ follower is to be involved in this in some way. We try to persuade, to woo, to urge men and women and boys and girls that the claims of Christ are actually true. You say, well, boy, that's not me. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I I get it. Not many people do. Honestly, I'd say less than 5% of Christians actually have the gift of evangelism, where they just got a miraculous, God-given ability to kind of help lead people to faith in Christ. Very few do have that. But everyone can be involved in this persuasion of people. We can do it by planting seeds. We can do it in little conversations. And oh, how we need more conversations like that. And the reason we do it is because souls are of inestimable value. And so every effort you make, every conversation you have, every prayer of intercession that you pray for an unbeliever, trust me, it's worth it. Because reaching people for Jesus is at the heart of our mission. He goes on to say in verse 14 why we do that. For the love of Christ controls us. Some other translations say it compels us. You could say it drives us. You could say it motivates us. That would all be accurate. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, Therefore, all died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So Christ's love gets us in his grip, and he compels us to share. Do you feel love today? Not a trick question, because not everyone does. Do you feel loved. This says that the love of Christ causes us to beg people, to implore people to come to Christ for salvation. It's that love of Christ that helps us overcome our fear and timidity. And here's why. Because if God, if God would reach all the way from heaven to earth to save a sinner like me, who am I not to reach across the room, across the table, across the street, across town, across the state, across the country, across the globe to share his love with others. So that's the first one. We know one thing for sure. You may wonder, well, boy, I'm not totally clear, Pastor, on how I can actually fulfill this pleasing God thing. I know one way you can any seed you plant that helps persuade people, 
that the gospel is true, trust me, you are pleasing God. Your heavenly Father is delighted, delighted with that. But there's a second way this text gives us. We please God by regarding no one from a merely human point of view. Now watch this. In verse 16, it says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no man, no one according to the flesh. Now, the word flesh, sarx in Greek, is used in numerous ways in the New Testament. But here, it refers not to just this flesh, it refers to all of the human things that we typically look at to sum a person up. So let me ask you a question. What is your view of personhood? When you look at people, when you think about people, whoever they are, how do you, how do you view them? How do you view them? Here's what I believe. I believe all the hate movements that were around in the 1930s and sponsored by Hitler and Nazi Germany in the late 1930s, it seems to me they're kind of coming back into vogue again. Xenophobia was rampant then. The fear of other races and people, it was epidemic in that time. And so in Hitler's day, they responded to that fear by shunning these people and ignoring these people and <clears throat> castigating these people and imprisoning these people and persecuting these people. And I would suggest to you that hate is alive and well in our world too. And in Hitler's day, it led to the extermination of six million Jews, but they weren't the only ones, there were millions more. This text, this amazing chapter that tells us how we can please God, it says that, listen, one of the ways you please God is to be radically different than most people around you. Here's how. When you look at people, you don't naturally just look at them according to human factors, even if they rub you the wrong way, even if you don't like them. Do you have any people around you you don't like? I do. Come on, be honest. You're looking at me like you've got halos on your head today. Let's be honest. There's a lot of people I don't like. I don't like, I just don't like them. They rub me the wrong way. They annoy me. Can I be that honest with you? There's a lot of people I don't even like. Now, I love them, but I don't like them. There is a difference. It doesn't mean you have to like them, but I'm compelled, I'm commanded to love them. And I can no longer look at them from a merely human point of view. What do we mean by that? A merely human, that would involve things like socioeconomic status. That would involve things like their ethnicity, their country of origin, their family background, their political and personal point of view whether they're married or unmarried, educated or uneducated, whether they have people skills or no people skills. Help me, Jesus. <laughs> and it certainly includes whatever their besetting sins and brokenness may be because we're all broken people. 
And instead of those human traits, now as I look at people, here's the way I'm supposed to see them. As a broken sinner in desperate need of God's grace and forgiveness, just like I am. That's the way I see everyone now. Say, Pastor, I don't like your preaching right now because this makes me feel uncomfortable. What if they don't agree with me? Your spouse doesn't agree with you. Half the people on your row right now don't agree with you. If you're looking for a world where everybody around you agrees with you, you're in big trouble. You're just in big trouble. What we have to learn to do as Christians is to not die on every single hill. You've got to learn as a Christian, as you get wiser, as you grow in sanctification and in your knowledge of God, you've got to learn that not every hill is worth dying on. Some of you, you're all scarred today because you died on a bunch of hills that were worth dying on. It just wasn't worth it because it wasn't in the big scheme of things that important. You say, well, how can I learn to know the difference? I'm gonna tell you how right now. Velcro your life to the Bible and to some other genuine believers in covenant community, and God will take care of it. Amen. That's how. I'm giving you the answer. You can't be isolated and secluded. You gotta Velcro your life to the Bible and to some other believers in covenant community, and God will start taking care of those things, and you'll start learning what's most important and what's not all that important at all. And now I'm gonna go from preaching to meddling. Wow, I can't believe myself today, but I'm gonna go there. Do you realize there's a whole movement in America right now, and I get it, of people who are literally moving to other states in the U.S. where they can be around people who share their political and cultural and spiritual points of view. What a boring life. <laughs> what a boring life. Now, don't, don't, don't shoot darts at me. I know there's lots of legitimate reasons to move. I get it. Economic reasons that are sound and wonderful. Uh, health reasons where you need a different climate and that kind of thing, and you'll flourish better in that. But please don't run from the world. Jesus has called you to witness to the world. Why are you running? Why are you running from the world? The Holy Spirit in you is greater than he who's in the world. Are you salty or have you lost your saltiness? If you've got any saltiness left, wake up call. It's time to get out of the salt shaker and into the world. Because the last time I checked, there's a lot of people perishing without hope and without God in the world. And I know to some of you, I sound like a raving lunatic right now, I get it. But our lives have to be driven by sound biblical theology. And God has called us here not, not to run from unbelievers but to witness to them 
and to regard them as broken, sinful people just like I am in desperate need of the grace of God, okay? Now, if you haven't checked out because you're too mad already, go with me on this last one, okay? The third way this chapter suggests that we please God is we please him by being effective ambassadors for Christ. That, of course, is verse 20, where it says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. In other words, we become his mouthpiece in the world. Our lives become these wonderful advertisements for who the Lord is. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, keep in mind, as Ralph Waldo Emerson said about preachers, he said, what the preacher is thunders so loud in the people's ears, they cannot hear what is said. And that's not just true of preachers. That's true of all of us. Your life is thundering. Your life is thundering. What message are people getting? This third one goes way beyond that first one about just persuading. This is a whole life thing. You see, as John Wesley said, our responsibility is to give the world the right impression of God. That's what an effective ambassador does. And to the degree that we don't do that well, the mission suffers. But when all who claim Christ as Lord take this ambassador thing, and by God's grace and empowerment, we actually do it well, whoa, people begin to get the aroma. They begin to get a sense of what God is like, and they say, wow, that's attractive. Because we literally begin to embody the mission and purpose as ambassadors. We, we live it out daily. Now, quickly, let me give you an example of what this looked like with a company we all know, the Walt Disney Corporation. In 1955, the stated mission of Disneyland was three words. We create happiness, three words. It changed a little bit in 1971, got a little longer. It was changed to we create happiness by providing the finest in entertainment. And then it was tweaked one more time in 1990. We create happiness by providing the finest in entertainment to people of all ages everywhere. But it's those first three words that are sticky. We create happiness. So, how does an 18-year-old popcorn popper who's selling popcorn in front of the iconic Disney castle, how does he live this out? All day long, he's got one job, pop the popcorn, box the popcorn, sell the popcorn. All day, every day. Pop the popcorn, box the popcorn, sell the popcorn. How in the world is he gonna live out the mission we create happiness? Well, one day, he's taking care of his guests, and he sees two older ladies taking a picture of each other in front of the castle. What should he do? You know immediately, right? He should, as soon as he has a free moment, he should go and walk over it and offer to take the picture so both ladies can be in it. And he does. This is a real story. He asks if they would like him to take a picture of both of them together. They say, yes. He takes the picture of the two of them in front of the castle, and he goes back to popping popcorn. 
Has he created happiness? He has. True story. Three months later, one of the two women wrote a letter to Disney's management, and I share it with you in closing. To whom it may concern, a few months ago, my sister and I went to Disneyland together. While there, the popcorn seller by the name of, she gives his name, stopped to take a picture of both of us in front of the castle. Please see a copy of the enclosed photo, and she included a copy of that picture. What the popcorn seller didn't know was that my sister and I had not been on speaking terms for some 20 years. When I learned that she was facing treatment for cancer, we made amends by coming to your park and spending some time together. The picture you see enclosed is the only one taken of us together in some 20 years. I'm so grateful for the young popcorn popper who took the time to take the picture. I will be indebted for having this last memory and it's signed, sincerely yours. This true story happened several years ago when an 18-year-old popcorn popper at Disney really sought to embody the mission of creating happiness. I believe the same thing happens with disciples of Jesus. It's a powerful thing, folks, when we get clear about our mission of pleasing God, and then we look for practical ways to work that into our daily life. That's when people are really helped. That's when the gospel is lived out. That's when God is pleased. So what's your purpose? You can make a difference. You don't have to be a majority. God has always used a remnant, and I say to you today, there's more power in this room today than in both houses of Congress, more. There's more power in this room today than in all the armies that have ever marched. Here's why. Because when we seek to please God with our whole being, he gets involved. And he does immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Father, may we be a people with a passion and a purpose to please you with our whole being. May we find practical ways to live that out, to be sensitive every moment to your Spirit's prompting of how we can please you as we live on this planet with whatever time you give us. Thank you, Lord, for such a grand calling. May we bring glory to your name, and may you be pleased. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.